Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. RSV infections are not new and have devastating impacts. The recent advent of new prevention strategies has renewed the focus on the disease with a hopeful outlook. For the last 25 years, the only FDA-approved product preventing RSV lower respiratory tract disease was palivizumab, or Synergis, a monoclonal antibody indicated for use in high-risk infants and children administered intramuscularly monthly throughout the RSV season. In May, the first-ever RSV vaccines were approved, Orexvi and Abrisvo. These two new RSV vaccines were approved for use in adults greater than or equal to 60 years of age. In August this year, one of the RSV vaccines, Abrisvo, also received approval for expanded use for maternal vaccination to prevent RSV lower respiratory tract disease in infants. Nercevimab, or Bayfortis, a new long-acting monoclonal antibody, was approved in July for prevention of RSV lower respiratory tract disease in infants and children. Compared with palivizumab, nercevimab is indicated for a much broader patient population, including recommended use in all infants less than eight months of age born during or entering their first RSV season. The rollout of nercevimab has proved challenging due to supply shortages, among other factors. Today, we discuss the new RSV prevention strategies focusing on the pediatric patient population, as well as the recent shortages with nirsevimab. We are joined by Dr. Deb Bondi, Dr. Nikolai Dahl, as well as my colleague from Vizient, Dr. Kyle Holting. Dr. Bondi is the pediatric clinical coordinator, a clinical pharmacy specialist in the neonatal intensive care unit, and the PGY2 pediatric pharmacy residency program director at the University of Chicago Medicine Comer Children's Hospital. Dr. Dahl is the Program Manager for Medication Utilization and Formulary at John Muir Health in the East Bay of San Francisco. Dr. Dahl has been with John Muir Health since 2012, working in critical care, and is now with Pharmacy Administration. He has been heavily involved with local chapters of the California Society of Health System Pharmacists and the Society for Clinical Care Medicine. Dr. Holting is a Senior Clinical Manager of Drug Shortages and Drug Information at the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence at Vizient and is a regular guest on our podcast. I'm John Schoen, Senior Clinical Manager of Evidence-Based Medicine and Drug Information at the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence at Vizient, and your guest program host for today's podcast. Welcome, Deb and Nikolai, and welcome back, Kyle. Thanks for having us. Yep, thanks for having me. Thank you for having us. Supply issues with nirsevimab have been a recent and ongoing area of concern. Before we get into the specifics of how University of Chicago and John Muir Health are managing the new RSV prevention strategies, let's first discuss the current situation with the nirsevimab shortages. Kyle, can you give us an update on where everything currently stands with the nirsevimab supply and what led to this shortage? Yeah, thanks, John. I did just want to add the caveat that we are recording this on November 27th. This situation is changing actively and day-to-day, month-to-month. To put it simply, the cause of this shortage is that the projections for production did not match demand. We initially saw issues with the 100 milligram syringes, issues being availability and order fulfillment. October 23rd, ASHP added nirsevimab 100 milligram syringes to their drug shortage list. And on that same day, CDC released recommendations as how hospitals can manage administration during the shortage of the 100 milligram product. 
On October 26th, CNFB released a press release essentially stating that the shortage was the result of increased demand did not match what they had expected to produce. It was just a mismatch of supply versus demand. And then they released a press release on November 6th stating that they were also seeing issues with the 50 milligram syringes. The shortage started with the 100 milligram syringes and has now moved on to the 50 milligram syringes as well. Has there been any information on whether or not there's going to be additional supply of either the 50 milligram or 100 milligram syringes later this season? Initially, there were reports per Sanofi that there weren't going to be any additional releases. But of course, that is changing day to day, month to month. CDC did release an additional 77,100 milligram syringes through the Vaccine for Children program and commercial channels on November 16th. I also want to add that seven senators submitted a letter to AstraZeneca and Sanofi, essentially noting the importance of this medication and inquiring about why it occurred, what they're doing to mitigate it, and when additional supply will be available. The response that letter requested was by November 30th. So I imagine additional information is going to be released here in the coming weeks. Sounds like nothing confirmed yet, but hopefully some additional supply will be coming later this season. Are there any resources related to mitigating this nirsevimab shortage that you would like listeners to be aware of? Yeah, there have been several guidance documents or recommendations that have been released. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and CDC have all released either guidance documents or recommendations to manage this shortage of nirsevimab. Vizient does have an available mitigation strategy that we've published that summarizes all of the available guidance and recommendations to date. The three primary recommendations are reserving nirsevimab for high-risk patients, utilizing palavizumab for palavizumab-eligible patients, and vaccinating pregnant individuals with a brizo that have a gestational age of 32 to 36 weeks. And we will continue to update the document as additional information is released and published. Thank you, Kyle, for that update. And now we'll transition to talking with Devin Nikolai about what their organizations are doing with these new RSV prevention strategies. Starting out and looking at forums, there's been quite a few questions that I've seen circulating around strategies to implement these new RSV vaccines and the monoclonal antibody. Just broadly speaking, what are both of you doing, University of Chicago and John Muir Health, with these new RSV vaccines and the new monoclonal antibody, Bayfortis? Just as a reference point, I work at a freestanding children's hospital in the neonatal ICU in a historically underserved patient population on the south side of Chicago. And a lot of the dynamics that went into some of our initial decision making when this drug was first approved prior to knowledge of the shortages and all of that was a lot of discussion around cost and health equity. One of the things that's been really interesting is discussions initially were pointed towards how people were going to approach this because it was not an inexpensive medication, but obviously had a lot of benefits. And then obviously our strategies have changed a lot because now it's all just about what you can even get. For us initially, being on the south side of Chicago, we observed that we actually had a pretty high no-show rate to first pediatrician appointment after the birth admission. So upwards of 20 to 30 percent of our patients were not showing up to that first pediatrician appointment. A lot of other institutions initially had a strategy where they were planning on deferring that first administration for healthy newborns to that initial pediatrician visit with the hope to get some 
reimbursement, we actually elected to give it to all babies on their birth admission, knowing that we didn't want to miss that two to three patients out of every 10 that doesn't show up. We initiated that strategy in mid-October. We made a health equity argument to the organization. We recognized it was going to be a big cost impact, but somehow convinced the C-suite that it was the right thing to do. And we've continued that despite the shortages because we were able to acquire initially a very large shipment because we anticipated vaccinating pretty much everyone. Since then, we've continued with the 50 milligram doses for all of our birth admissions. For our NICU admissions, we have upwards of 90 to 95% acceptance rate. Our general care nursery where the healthy babies go and don't come to the ICU, it's closer to 50% of an uptake. But we do envision that if we continue with this rate, that we will probably run out of our 50 milligram doses by the new year. We're constantly evolving on what our strategy is going to be for that. We found out pretty early about the 100 milligram issue. And so we changed our strategy for second season pretty quickly. We were going to reserve it for outpatient only and, and do more of the CDC recommendations of trying to reserve it for patients who otherwise probably would not qualify for palivizumab or for us probably have some either social or economic barriers to return for that monthly visit to get that palivizumab administration. Great. Thanks, Nikolai. What's being done at John Muir Health? At John Muir Health, we had a similar understanding initially that we thought we would be able to vaccinate all of our patients with nirsevimab. Obviously, that quickly was found to be not a possibility. So we met with our physician providers and our physician champions and came up with a strategy where we could essentially vaccinate our high-risk population, which we considered to be our NICU patients. We were able to get enough supply just for the NICU initially, and we essentially calculated it out through the season. We didn't think there would be as much of an uptake of well baby population. So what we decided to do was to work with our outpatient providers where we knew we have a high rate of follow-up within the first seven days and provide them with the 50 milligram doses of nirsevimab. We've received a very, very small supply of the 100 milligram. With that population, the patients who would be getting the 100 milligram, we had to work very closely with our providers to find out who were the highest risk. One of the strategies we used was seeing who in the previous season received Synergis. And so we essentially called those patients back in to see if they would take the nirsevimab 100 milligram. And then in terms of the Arexi and Abrivzo, we made a decision very early on that we wouldn't be able to vaccinate older adults. Our reasoning was that since most of those patients were Medicare patients, we wouldn't be getting reimbursed and we didn't want to put the burden on those patients to be able to pay out of pocket within our system. We did let all our providers know to send those patients to a local pharmacy for equity reasons. And then in terms of our maternal patients, we had been waiting to see where our reimbursement would be on Breezeville for maternal patients. And when we could confirm that we would be getting reimbursed and that the bill wouldn't be falling on those patients, we did launch that. What formulary decisions have your organizations made around nirsevimab and palivizumab? Are both of the agents on formulary? Do you have restrictions in place? What is your approach to deciding what to do with the maternal RSV vaccine with respect to the monoclonal antibodies? And has the nirsevimab shortage impacted any of these factors? Any chance to vaccinate anybody is an opportunity, and so we're never going to have a missed opportunity. We do have the maternal RSV vaccine on formulary. We are offering it to all of our pregnant individuals during the time window in which we would ideally want it. They are definitely being counseled, and our OB team is very much aware of the nirsevimab shortage and is trying to include that in some of their counseling points. I'm seeing some people take it, and I'm still seeing some people decline. There is always going to be a lot of fear associated with giving something while your child is still in utero versus being outside of the womb always feels a little bit safer for parents when giving a medication. But we are following the CDC recommendations for that. 
if they have received the vaccination at least two weeks prior to delivery, then we are not necessarily offering it to those patients. Now, if I have nirsevimab in stock and I happen to have a patient who their birthing parent got it two weeks prior to delivery, but they are now four months old and it's the middle of the season and they're going home on oxygen, I think there's other decision makers you have to take into account. Whether or not I have the drug in stock is going to play a role. So I do think there's going to be this gray area of patient who falls outside of that three-month window where I would anticipate that some of those antibodies have fallen after birth who might be still high risk or I might still consider it. But I think for the typical patient who's going home, not on oxygen, not necessarily other high risk factors, that as long as there was a vaccination given to the birthing parent, we would elect to save that nirsevimab for another patient. And we had a similar experience at John Muir. Initially, we had planned to completely remove palivizumab from the formulary after the addition of nirsevimab. But obviously, after the shortage, we opted to keep it just in case there is a patient that we're not able to immunize with nirsevimab. We made a decision with Abrisvo to not add it to our inpatient formulary. At John Muir Health, we would only be seeing those maternal patients if they were considered high risk. And since those patients were excluded from the Abrisvo studies, we opted to only keep it in our outpatient formulary for those patients that meet the CDC criteria. I forgot to touch on polyvizumab. I have an inherent distrust. So we had some vials on hand just in case coming into the season, anticipating there could be some issues. There's a gray area of patients who don't quite meet the nirsevimab criteria, but do meet the palivizumab criteria. And so we wanted to keep it on hand for those patients. So we did have about a dozen vials coming into the season that have potentially come in handy now that the shortage has sort of shown itself. ACIP has recommendations that they've put out for both nirsevimab and the maternal RSV vaccine. In cases where the maternal vaccine is given, generally the monoclonal antibody is not also necessary. However, there are some exceptions to that. So I guess in general, do either of you at your organization have a preference for the maternal RSV vaccine or nirsevimab? Currently in the setting of the shortage and in an ideal world where there wasn't the shortage, what would that look like? And if so, in what populations would you be preferring one versus the other. In the vast majority of cases, giving it to the birthing parent would typically be preferred for me, unless there was an impending delivery, in which case you would obviously assume that the child would not necessarily get the full benefit since you do need some time prior to delivery. Obviously, it doesn't make a lot of sense if she's in preterm labor and different things like that around that 32 to 34 week window. But otherwise, to me, it makes sense. It would be something that I could do for myself as a birthing parent that I would then not have to do for my child. I think that's our logic behind that. With our no-show rate, ideally, we'd want to take any opportunity to vaccinate if we could. There are going to be some high-risk patients who may have been excluded from those studies, again, where you may want to consider potentially withholding and giving to the newborn instead. In the vast majority of cases for a typical healthy pregnancy, for us, it would definitely be preferred to go ahead and give it during the pregnancy. I would agree with Deb on that. That would be our preferred method. Also, you're going to be vaccinating both the parent and the child. So you're vaccinating really two patients at that point. Obviously, from a financial standpoint, we might consider that we would have a better financial benefit for John Muir Health as a system if we're vaccinating the mother. That's a really, really important point. When babies get RSV, they get it from somebody. And the person they're probably around the most is going to be their parents who are maybe around siblings who are in daycare, who are getting germs, where all of these babies probably spend a ton of time with a bunch of family members. Right now, unless you're pregnant or over 60, if you're an adult, you don't get an RSV vaccine. That's a really great point telling these birthing parents that not only is this benefiting your baby, but it's going to benefit them doubly because it's going to reduce the likelihood that that you're going to have the ability to transfer that RSV to the baby as well. 
I'd like to get into some of the logistical issues that I've heard around these new RSV prevention strategies. First, with the maternal RSV vaccine, what is your organization doing to have that vaccine status visible to providers when you're identifying whether or not they're appropriate candidates to receive nirsevimab? And additionally, how is nirsevimab administration being documented in the EHR at your organization since it's not technically a true vaccine, but a lot of organizations are wanting that to be visible within the immunization records. At John Muir Health, we have three ways that we're able to see the vaccination. When the provider is going to order nirsevimab, it's flagged within the electronic health record, the mother's vaccination status, and when they receive that vaccine. In addition, we created some templates for their notes, where when they're writing their admission note, they're able to see the mother's vaccination status at that point. It does get documented within the immunization records as an immunization, not a vaccine for the nirsevimab. Ours is very similar. We updated the HNP templates for both our NICU as well as our WellBaby nursery to include an assessment of maternal vaccination status. Generally, if it's unknown, we'll ask the birthing parent if possible. But generally, our default is that if you don't know, you're going to assume they didn't get it in time. Then we'll go ahead and offer the nirsevimab to the baby. Our polyvizumab even used to show up in the immunization records section already. So that standard was already there for us as much as it was even less so, I guess, considered an immunization back in the day. And so I guess that sort of benefited us now in that even though it's not a vaccine, we're all clearly considering this an immunization as it's part of the immunization schedule now. And so both the birthing parents RSV vaccine, as well as the newborns nirsevimab would show up in the immunization tab for us in Epic. Have either your organizations run across any other logistical issues with either nirsevimab or the maternal RSV vaccines, such as scope of practice considerations, uh, stocking of the VFC product, inpatient education, et cetera? Yeah, we've had a few things pop up. Scope of practice definitely came up as a topic of conversation, and this will vary from state to state, but depending on our clinics, some of them are nurse administration and some of them are MAs, in which case there was a lot of discussions about scope of practice and whether or not this type of injection could be given. Is it just the route needs to be IM? Does it specifically need to be a vaccine versus an immunization? So I know there were a lot of discussions pretty early on related to whether or not we could give those in our pediatric clinics that only had medical assistance administering our other vaccinations. Education has been a thing, although it's not been too bad, since I think everyone globally has been pretty excited about this, that they've been more eager, I think, to read the education, perhaps, than some of other educations we've sent. But I would say one of our bigger points of confusion has just been related to this whole concept of it not exactly being a vaccine, so it doesn't have a vaccine information sheet, but it does have an immunization information sheet, but that's not found on the VIS page of the CDC website. And so that's created some confusion for some of our nursing staff as they're trying to make sure they they obtain the appropriate education, a little bit less so for our outpatient side, since they sort of have those printed off on paper ahead of time, but a little bit more so far inpatient side. Our other big logistical thing has been VFC. It's so interesting. What supply different hospitals are getting is so varied. You know, I have a friend on the East Coast who told me she got five vials of nirsevimab total, five. I mean, I don't even know what you do with five vials, right? That's practically zero. We got a lot of commercial product, but we've received zero VFC product. And we are on the south side of Chicago, and we have a lot of Medicaid patients. Initially, the messaging we got from IDPH and from VFC is that we could do that borrowing process with the expectation we'd be able to repay back later, knowing that we got our commercial product in first. 
But obviously, now that VFC is also short on product, they've now sent out formal messaging to no longer allow that borrowing process because we would not be able to repay it in time because there isn't more product to give. And so that's created a logistical issue for us, which ultimately resulted in we're not going to not vaccinate children or immunize children that deserve it and just because they have Medicaid and should get VSC. So we are just eating the cost for the commercial product outpatient so that all of the children who would have normally gotten a VFC product are still getting immunized despite the fact that we don't actually have VFC product to give them. We had initially gone through the process of becoming a VFC provider for the hospital. Previously, we hadn't gone in that direction because there wasn't a huge benefit for the hospital system. As we were going through that process, though, we found that our outpatient VFC providers were not receiving any of the product. And so we had gone the same direction as Deb, where we were eating the cost um, and just buying the commercial supply for patients who were at risk, particularly. In terms of inpatient or education in general, we didn't have an issue outpatient for the most part with immunization, but our inpatient well baby nurses were very uncomfortable giving education on the uh, nirsevimab initially. That's changed quite a bit as there's been more in the news and they've received a lot more education on the product. Of course, we haven't been able to supply nearly enough to administer in the well baby areas, but they seem to be a lot more comfortable now. In terms of payment or billing, have you experienced any issues with that for either nirsevimab or the maternal RSV vaccine? For nirsevimab, we don't expect to receive any payment for inpatients at this point. We're hoping that that will change in the next season or possibly with some creative billing. But at this point, we don't expect any inpatient reimbursement. For outpatient, though, we have been expecting to see reimbursement on the nirsevimab, except in those cases where the patient should be a VFC, but we're giving them the commercial product. For the maternal RSV vaccine, for Brisbane, we have been receiving payment recently, but that did lag quite a bit. So we miss the ability to vaccinate a significant amount of mothers. But now we have started that process. Yeah, I think we're in the same bucket. We anticipated a pretty big dent into our budget just by offering this to everybody on the birth admission. We anticipated at least just this first season. We're really hoping this gets rolled into the birth admission DRGs for next year, similar to the hepatitis B vaccine, where this will be much less of an issue for next season. And then this whole concept where we didn't get any VFC product and we're just having to use commercial for outpatient is a little bit wild considering the high percentage of our patients that are VFC eligible and should be getting VFC products. So I am curious if anything will come out on the back end of this in relation to the shortage in terms of potentially some sort of reimbursement for institutions, knowing that they did have to eat a lot of that cost in order to really do the right thing for the patients. Do either of you have any clinical pearls or advice related to these new prevention strategies that you'd like to share with our listeners? From Judmere Health, the biggest advice I have would be to work with your providers. We had everybody get in a room, our obstetricians, pediatric infectious disease, neonatologists and our pediatricians, including outpatient and inpatient. And we worked through what would be the best strategy for Judmere financially, but also to ensure that we can vaccinate as many patients as possible. That communication back and forth that we've had throughout this season has really helped us to get a better understanding of how we can treat our patients. I echo that. I think getting all the right stakeholders in the room, which we've had numerous meetings related to NurseFMAB and its availability ever since the beginning of its approval in order to prepare for the season. In the process, we come to realize how many different facets of administration places there are, and they're all very different and they all have different needs. We have everything from our inpatient NICU to our inpatient well baby to our outpatient general pediatrician, but then our outpatient high-risk clinics, all of our smaller outpatient pediatric clinics, 
thinking about some of the qualifications that nirsevimab had that were a little bit stronger than palivizumab, encompassing some of those other clinics like oncology that might have had a softer indication with palivizumab, but a stronger indication for second season for nirsevimab. Because everybody ultimately wants to take care of those patients and take care of their patients and they know their issues. What we came to realize is that by coming up with a strategy that works for some, it does not necessarily work for all. I think it's also really helpful for our physician providers to kind of understand the needs of each group. And that makes it a little bit easier when those compromises have to be made. Hopefully, we're all sitting pretty next year and we don't have to have these conversations. As we progress, I think every single week, we're kind of changing our strategy depending on what the current RSV rate is, what our current supply is, how much we have left to determine whether or not we need to restrict further, adjust our restrictions, loosen our restrictions. A good example of this for us is as our 50 milligram supply dwindles and we're still currently giving it to all birth admissions, as we continue to get a lower and lower supply, we're going to start having those conversations about do we limit this to patients with a higher or medium risk. On the other hand, we restricted our 100 milligram supply extremely heavily when we found out about that issue at the beginning of the season before the season even started. And what we've come to realize is there's actually probably a few patients we could have given it to that we haven't and we still have a, a few hundred milligrams left over that we could have probably used for some of those patients. Having all those stakeholders in the room has been really helpful. I think having people who their main job is to manage the money has been really helpful. We've had our drug policy pharmacist who's been able to communicate with a lot of higher level folks at the C-suite level to make that health equity argument. We've had our purchasing in those meetings. And then we've had our informatics in those meetings so that we can make really quick, meaningful changes on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis as all of these things have changed and we've kind of had to modify our strategies. Deb, Nicola, and Kyle, thank you so much for joining us today to share your perspectives. Really appreciate all the great information that you shared with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.